Please open up in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to take a, a little break from the Gospel of John. <coughs> this psalm, providentially, I, uh, it wasn't, wasn't planned, but uh, this psalm talks about the foes that gather around us. And the sermon this morning is essentially on the greatest of the foes who stand against us, uh, namely the foe of death. Death has been on my mind uh, quite a bit lately. In January, there were just a lot of people that I knew who died. A lot of them, actually all of them, were believers. Uh, Praise the Lord for that. But still, when deaths are many, we tend to think soberly about the things of life. As, uh, as most relevant for our church here, a few weeks ago, our brother Matt Gulan unexpectedly died. And uh, that death especially was very shocking, feels like. It, it was very, um, it, was, it sent shocks to our souls, I feel like. And it reminds us of this fact. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. If you're very much familiar with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, then you're likely aware that death is a common motif in those writings. It makes sense. Death just necessarily affects and colors how we live our lives and how we think about the future and how we plan for what we're going to do. It necessarily affects life. And the book of Ecclesiastes in particular has a lot to say about how death affects us. It says things like, it doesn't matter if you are a wise man or a fool. You can be the most successful person in every single area of life. You can be the most powerful man alive, and it doesn't matter because you'll still die. Your accomplishments will not keep death from you. You'll die just like everyone else. Ecclesiastes kind of muses, so what's the point? What's the point in life? Death seems to make things meaningless. I mean, we sacrifice, we work hard our entire life. We toil, we toil, and we toil. And what does that do when we die? How does that help us? We've labored so hard, and all we're waiting to do is just lose everything that we've worked for. Isn't a waste? Couldn't we just, instead of working so hard, enjoy life? This is a somewhat timeless sentiment, and we uh, can appreciate modern versions of it. You guys heard of YOLO, right? I don't think anyone uses YOLO anymore, but the principle is still relevant. You only live once, and it was a kind of cry of the world. You will die. You might as well enjoy the time that you have. Why get caught up in responsibilities? Just live in the moment. And though the conclusion is skewed, the principle there is something really profound. Death is coming. It's coming, and everyone knows it's coming. And what will you enjoy then, once you're dead? Everyone lives with some degree of expectation of their own death. We think about it from time to time. And its shadow kind of looms in the future. Even when we try and push it from our minds, even when we try and forget about it, we can't escape its uncomfortable glare. And I think that unexpected deaths are really hard for two reasons. One, we miss the person, obviously. We wish to be near to them. But secondly, I think they're hard for us because they have a kind of sobering effect on us. They strengthen death's glare for a moment. We see 
that it's staring at us. It's kind of like the eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. Unexpected deaths reveal that the eye of death is set on us, and it's glaring, and it's waiting. And those moments of death that we feel, they crack the facade of life just a little bit for us. And it reminds us, everything does not continue as it's always been. Life is fleeting. It's quickly taken. It's unexpectedly robbed. There is not much keeping you right now from dying. Shockingly little. Tomorrow, you could be gone. And that's not just a saying. That's not just, oh yeah, we know that. No, really, actually, seriously, you're mortal. You could die this night. What could you do to stop it? And when you die, what happens to your life's entire work? Disappear right along with you? Everything you've worked for? All the things that you value could just fall apart? Or they could get snatched away by someone else who will do a disservice to them? Your kids grow up without you? Your spouse might marry someone else? Reality is that we affect things while we're here, but then we're taken. And then what's left for us? We have the sense that uh, there's an injustice in this. This isn't right. Ecclesiastes says it much. It says that this is a great evil. So the question for us, relevant this morning, is, okay, we will die, but how should we as Christians think about death? Obviously, Christianity offers future hope beyond death. We look to the day of resurrection. And so in light of that hope, how ought we think about death? And then, how ought we live differently in light of the realities of eternal life? And that's going to be the study of uh, this morning. Death is an enemy indeed, but like the song says, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. And that certainly changes everything. So, please open to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. We're going to read from verse 51 through the end of the chapter, then we'll pray, and then we'll go through it. Behold... I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us this victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Father, give us wisdom this morning as we study this text. We know that your word is profitable for a whole host of good things, that it will build us up and train us in righteousness and correct us and reprove us. Lord, help us to understand rightly how we should think about death Father, use your word to sanctify your people, not just in our doctrine, but in our lives. Help us to live as those who do not fear the sting of death, but as those who have confidence in the victory of the Lord Jesus. 
Thank you that you've spoken to us, that we have this hope of eternal life, that we can cling to it in the trials of life. Aid us, please, this morning, we ask, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 15 is a relatively well-known chapter. A lot of people refer to it as the resurrection chapter because in Corinth, there were those who denied a future bodily resurrection for Christians. That's like the most important thing to understanding what Paul is talking about in this text. Evidently, it was a significant enough group to warrant a pretty hearty systematic refutation in this epistle. At the beginning of chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, I'm going to quickly just go through and catch us up to speed, go through the whole chapter briefly. So in verses 1 through 11, Paul gives a summary of the gospel narrative, kind of crowned by Jesus' resurrection. And he says that more than 500 people were eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus. Now, just as a side note, this isn't even in the text we're reading, but I had to pause and say, 500 people, that's remarkable. That's a remarkable fact. Paul did not say, hey, I had this vision, and Peter had this vision, and together we saw Jesus, so, you know, you should listen to us. No, uh, he didn't say that only certain people could see Christ because we needed to make sure that our faith was genuine, and if we saw it, then it wouldn't be faith. No, no vision, no spiritual sight needed. Jesus physically appeared physically appeared. He said, touch me, to more than 500 people. Christ's resurrection was not a private affair. There were a host of witnesses. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the resurrection of Christ is a real, historical, verifiable event. Paul is not appealing to this as some metaphor that helps us in life. He's saying, no, no, like this guy died, and now he's not dead anymore, and we saw him. In fact, if, you, if you're you want to know, just go talk to them. We, they all saw him too. 500 people saw him. Uh, it's a literal resurrection. It's just worth noting because it's pretty cool. In verses 12 through 19, Paul continues to explain the inconsistency of a Christian denying bodily resurrection. Paul's logic is this. If we won't be physically raised from the dead, then Christ wasn't physically raised from the dead. And if Christ wasn't physically raised from the dead, why are you a Christian? <laughs> go home. Uh, sleep in on Sundays, because it doesn't make any sense. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, Paul's point is that the entirety of Christianity is defunct. He says, you are still in your sins, and your faith is in vain. And if you still live a life of self-denial and persecution for a dead Messiah, you are, above all the other fools of the world, the most to be pitied. Christianity is a faith grounded in real history and real hope. And our faith cannot exist as a metaphor. It's not a psychological aid for this life. It's not just a helpful mindset that gives men a sense of morality that teaches good lessons for society. I don't know, this is a kind of modern junk that's cropped up. No, it's not a metaphor. It's not for psychology. It's history. It's hope of real happenings. Jesus died, his heart stopped, and then he came back to life. And so too are we saying we will die and then come back to life. That's the central hope of the Christian faith. And everything springs from that. This junk that says we're a sociological movement, moral lessons and stories that benefit the psyche, absolutely not. Heaven is not a state of mind. Hell is not a state of mind. 
Jesus isn't just some good idea or moral teacher. He's either God Almighty or he's not. He either raised from the dead or he didn't. If he did, then Christianity is a serious force to be reckoned with because how many people do you know who raised from the dead? If he didn't, then Christ is of no use to us. This is a waste of our lives and we should be pitied. Verses 20 through 34 then provide the proper grounds for our future resurrection. Why will we be raised? Well, simply, Christ is the first fruits. What happened to him will happen to us. We will raise because he did. Verses 30 through 50 tell about the nature of the new resurrection body that we're going to receive. We're not going to be disembodied spirits just bouncing from cloud to cloud in eternity. We'll have real physical bodies. And our new body will be glorious compared to this one. Paul uses the example of, it's like comparing the the brightness of a star to the brightness of the sun. That's the, the difference of the glory of this body compared to the glory of the body that is to come. The question is why? why? Why change our resurrection body? Why does it need to be different? Verse 50 tells us, because the future eternal state demands a kind of body that's more glorious than this one. A perishable, mortal, and frail body that we have now is not suitable for the glorified state that we'll inherit. It's not fitting for it. Our body now is fitting for the era in which we live, and our body then will be equally as fitting for that age. And that all brings us up to our section this morning. Verse 51, that's the fastest I've ever gone through a chapter. Look at that, impressive. Uh, Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Behold, hey, pay attention. Behold, something significant is here. There's a mystery here. Now, the word mystery in the Bible differs slightly from the way we use the term mystery. Uh, A biblical mystery is a truth that was once shrouded, it was unrevealed or unclear, it was kind of left in Old Testament shadows, but it has now been fully disclosed in the New Testament age. God has revealed, for the record, so many things so clearly in the New Testament. It is like a a lamp that shines a light on the shadows of the Old Testament. It helps us understand what was going on in the Old Testament. It gives us a clearer vision of what God had revealed there. And you can't think about the nature of revelation and, and how God has revealed things without being struck by how kind God has been to us. The ability to know God at all, to know anything about him, is... A, pure gift, an expression of kindness of God. And then not only do we know about God, we know who he is. We know what he expects. We know how to have peace with him. We have all the the stories and narratives of his people preserved. Can you imagine how excited Moses or Abraham would be to have all 66 books in their possession? God has no obligation to reveal a single thing to us. And yet, as an expression of grace, he is a God who speaks to his people. We don't wander around wondering who he is. We know him because he's revealed himself. We have so much revealed to us. And we are so flippant. We're flippant with the amount of knowledge that's been given to us, the revelation that we have 
to our detriment as Christians. It is a profound privilege to have the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, and it is something we ought cherish. It is useful for us. As the hymn says, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. To us have been given the oracles of God. We have ready access to a host of mysteries that have now been revealed, and that is a fact worthy of praise and thanksgiving. And may we, brothers and sisters, be those who value Scripture more than gold. And may we be those who learn to meditate on it day and night. Anyways, here's the mystery that Paul speaks of. The mystery that was once not really known, but now is known. He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, on the day of the resurrection, not everyone will be dead. There will be those who are still living. And even though they're still living, they don't miss the resurrection. All of us, dead and living on that day, will be changed. I want to focus in a little bit on the word he uses here, we shall not all sleep. Sleep. When he says, we shall not all sleep, he means die. We shall not all die. Now, Paul used this word earlier in chapter 15 to reference some of the eyewitnesses who had fallen asleep, who had died at this point. Similar language is used for those who have died throughout the New Testament. Uh, and it's no accident that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to use this word, sleep. There's meaning in this word for us to glean. Uh, what's true about sleep? Sleep is temporary. Sleep is something that we awaken from. Sleep is innocuous. It's somewhat insignificant to us. And I think one of the most significant things, we don't fear falling asleep. Brothers and sisters, your death, like sleep, is temporary. As we certainly, well not certainly, as we awake each morning, we shall certainly awake from death. And death for Christians then is not like death for unbelievers. They're different. That's why the New Testament tells us we don't grieve as others do who have no hope. Hebrews tells us that Christ has delivered us from a slavish fear of death. It's temporary, it's passing, and it will end. The world freaks out at death. It loses its mind. If you don't believe me, just go relive 2020, okay? Uh, the world fears death, and it's evident and clear. Saints, we don't respond the same way as the world. We've been delivered from a fear of death. For us who have hope, death is merely falling asleep. And it's not fitting then for us who have this hope to be like the world and frantically do everything we can to avoid death at all costs. Hear me on this point. I think it's important. There should be far greater considerations for the Christian than avoiding death. There should be far greater considerations for the Christian than avoiding death. In the early days of the Christian church, one of the most remarkable things about Christians was how their compassion outweighed their dread of death. I have a somewhat lengthy quote from Bishop Dionysius talking about how Christians reacted to a severe pandemic uh, in the mid-200s AD. I, I think it's really helpful, and it illustrates this point well. So here's the quote. Here's what he wrote. 
out of the blue came this disease, a thing more terrifying to the unbelievers than any terror, more frightening than any disaster. To us, it was not that, but a schooling and testing, for it did not pass over us. The heathens behaved opposite the Christians. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. But most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead, saying to them, your humble servant bids you goodbye. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. What a tremendous testimony. Christians, don't fear death. We don't serve that master. We serve the Lord Jesus. What is death but a nap for those who believe? Don't live to prolong life. Live to glorify God with the life that he's given you. Back to our text. Paul is speaking to us about what happens to those who don't die at the return of Christ and the resurrection. Not all will sleep, but those who are living and those who are dead will both be changed. Now, this change, this receiving of an imperishable body, a resurrection body, it's not a gradual shift over time. It's not a result of some evolutionary process or transhumanistic development. This change occurs immediately. How do I know that? Well, God told me in the next verse, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Changed in a moment, like like that, in the smallest amount of time possible. He points to the eye as an illustration. When the eye moves, you don't really see an in-between phase of movement. He just kind of darts around. And that's kind of the idea here. It's an instantaneous switch. One moment, perishable, fleshly, mortal. Another moment, perfected, glorious, immortal, fitted for eternity. And at that moment, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And all of this occurs when? Well, he says, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised. Both Old and New Testaments often use trumpets to speak of eschatological events, that is, end times events. If we look through the New Testament for a text that is kind of parallel, we very quickly are brought to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which says this, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." So what what happens at this event? The last trumpet sounds. The dead are resurrected. All receive glorified bodies. 
and we all meet together in the air, dead and living with new resurrected bodies. And I want to draw your attention to one thing that I think is significant. This text says this occurs at the last trumpet, the final trumpet, meaning there is no trumpet to sound after this event. It sounds at the end of this age. This final trumpet marks the end of corruption, the end of unrighteousness, the end of abiding sinfulness on earth, and the marked end of death and sin itself. It is that great trumpet that we wait for with eager hope and longing. Let's continue on with the next few verses, verse 53 through 55. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I'm sorry, I learned these verses in King James originally, and your is just not right. Okay, it should be, oh, death, where is thy victory? That's just, that's got the oomph to it. Oh, death, where is thy sting? That's, that's how it should go, just saying. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, on the day when this change happens to all believers, then, then, notice the then. The then is a temporal word. It indicates a, a moment in time. When this happens, then will this statement from Isaiah be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Notice this, saints. Death is in its death throes. Christ has dealt a, a fatal blow to it, but it's not dead yet. The victory is still to come. The victory is not here yet on this issue. On the day when that last trumpet sounds, when the dead are raised up, when those living receive their resurrection bodies, when that day happens, then will come to pass what was foretold in the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory. We are awaiting the victory. And it is on that day that we claim with finality, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Since the fall of humanity in the garden, death has been our mortal enemy. It's a, it's a violation of the created order. It's a thing that ought not be. It is not good. It's the apex of the curse. The end of the curse, God says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's not natural. And it's worth noting that in all of this chapter, with all that's said about resurrection, Paul doesn't ever mock death. That is, he doesn't ever make little of it. He doesn't deny that death has power, and he doesn't promise that its bite is mild. He uses in this verse and the next the language of a creature with a sting, a sting, like a, like a scorpion that inflicts searing pain on its victim. Death stalks us and it stings us. And no man can avoid this foe. Death doesn't care how well you've done at your job. Death doesn't care how much money you have in your account. Death doesn't care how much you are desperately needed by your family Death doesn't consider your holiness. The holiest of men, those nearest to the Lord in communion with him, they've died. Death does not consider age. It doesn't consider your current hardships. It doesn't care 
about any of these things. Death looks at you, scoffs, and strikes with a sting that is most bitter. And what can we do? You, regardless of all the worldly power you may accrue in your life, you're its prey, and it's hunting you down. No medical advances, no, no miracle drugs, no healthy eating, no workout routine will keep death from you. You are deaths. What are you going to do about that? You will face this foe, and you will face this foe alone. You and me and every person you've ever met, unless the Lord comes, will die. Will die. It's not an if, it is a when. And you cannot live like it's an if. And Paul, in this text, he's not giving us tips for that battle. He's not telling us how to escape our adversary, because the outcome is already inevitable. It will sting you, and you will die. But he does speak of a victory, not an escape, a victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is an adversary like none other. You can't best it. But even that great enemy, the Lord of hosts, will crush And the conquest over death is remarkable. It's it's two-pronged. First, the power of death is crushed. Never again will death claim any more victims. When the trumpet of the Lord sounds, from that day on forevermore, death will claim no one again. Its power will be broken. But number two is remarkable. Death's vaults will be plundered. When the last trumpet sounds its victims, the piles of bodies in graveyards, they will rise to never die again. That stinger, removed. That wound, healed. And on that day, who will scoff at death? We will. As the righteous Lamb of God strikes down our great foe for all time. Praise be to God, for by dying, Christ has conquered death. And by weakness, he has destroyed the power of the grave. And so in typical Pauline fashion, he bursts out in praise. An explosion of glorying in this truth. O death, where is thy victory? O foe, O adversary, you've lost. Do you hear it? You've lost. You've been triumphed over by the Lord. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Where is it? That stinger is gone. Though death grasps Christians, though it struck a fatal blow, our enemy has no enduring victory. Because at the last trumpet, we shall all be changed. The resurrection of our Lord secured this victory. So to him be the glory. These are the kinds of things we sing about. I couldn't get this song out of my head as I was thinking through this text from Crown him with many crowns. This is what the hymn says. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. And lives that death may die. What a fantastic line. 
It's really important, saints, for us to realize we have not secured the victory. We have never had personal victory over death. We receive the victory of Christ. And I think Paul wanted to highlight this point because he goes on in verse 56 to talk about this reality that we are powerless to alter this fate of ours. Verse 56 says this, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What does he mean by this? The sting of death is sin. So think of it like death's weapon, death's attack is sin. How, How is death going to get you? By sin. If we were to disarm death, if you and I were to try and escape death on our own, if we were to try and disarm it, what would we have to do? We would have to put away sin, for the wages of sin is death. And then the apostle tells us the power of sin is the law. So for death to be neutered, sin must be dealt with. And sin has great power where the law is present. And brothers and sisters, this poses quite the problem for you and I, if we're seeking to defeat death on our own. Because for us to personally overcome death, that means we would have to be sinless. We can't do that. We have a sinful nature. And our flesh, even more so, is provoked and stirred up by law. And God has said he has placed his law on the hearts of everyone who has ever or will ever exist. In other words, it does not matter who you are. It does not matter if you have God's word or not. You know that there is a right and a wrong, and you know that you've done wrong. This is an unfortunate truth for sinners. Where there is law, there is sin. Law is over all of us, and so so is sin. A helpful illustration, I think, perhaps to show this point. My son has, you know, those tr- the trains, the wood trains that kind of link together, magnetic things, right? Um, he plays with those. He loves those things, and he's free to do that. It's not wrong for him to play with those trains, Unless it's past his bedtime. And then I say, son, don't play with the trains. Now, sin has an opportunity. Before, there was no opportunity for sin to strike. There was no law. But now a law has been given. Now, for him to play with those trains would be sin. So sin rises up within when there's an opportunity to strike. Where there's law, there's opportunity for sin. And that's why we're in trouble. Our flesh has opportunity to sin left and right. God's law coded into our hearts says this. If we even look at a woman with lust, we've committed adultery. If we've hated a brother or a murderer, if our heart has even the slightest deviation from the heart of Christ, the law stands over us and condemns us. And the law has imbued sin with such power that all the inner parts of our minds are shown to be vile and ghastly. And this is why the scripture says, no one is righteous. No one does good. When doing street evangelism, I have heard so many Latter-day Saints on the street tell me that, you know, even if our doctrine is wrong, we're all just doing our best and God will see our heart. This assumes a couple things, several things. It assumes one thing about God's law, that God's law only condemns us in the most extreme cases over grievous and grotesque sins, perhaps like murder or rape. Yes, indeed, those things are heinous, but so is your heart. So is your secret lust and your envy and your pride. 
so is your hatred and your arrogance and your greed. The law goes beyond the outward actions and it exposes the inward nature of the heart. And that's why we can't defeat death. Our hearts are so, so wicked. And woe to the man who thinks his heart is a haven for righteousness. Such a person has deluded themselves. That person does not know God's law, nor do they even know their own heart. The commandments of the Lord, are, they're like a flashlight, and they shine the light on this obvious, plain truth. We're not good. And the more we grasp God's law, the more we see how condemned we stand. As Paul says, the power of sin is the law. Now, the religions of the world, they universally say that we must make ourselves worthy in some measure by doing good, by, by ordinance, by obedience to laws, whatever. Church, let me tell you, if that is your method to defeat death, if you seek to remove the sting of death by sinless adherence to law, hear me on this, you will feel that sting of death, and it will not only claim your body, it will claim your soul in hell. Spurgeon said this, O madman, go, work out thine own salvation with fear and trembling, without the God that worketh in thee. Go, twist thy rope of sand. Go, build a pyramid of error. Error. Go, prepare a house with bubbles and think it is to last forever. But no, it will be a dream with an awful awakening. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Death's sting shall never be stilled by our efforts. Death is swallowed up because of verse 57, which says this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. You have not won this victory. You've lost you did not overcome sin and keep the law. Jesus did. You did not defeat death. Jesus did. You have not willingly laid down your life and taken it back on your own authority. Jesus did. Glory in this with me for a moment. Jesus has kept the law. He's kept that law, the most holy perfect, righteous law of Almighty God. Jesus has done what we did not. No commandment was too difficult for him. No sin came upon his head. His heart was holy and pure and without blemish. And yes, he was tempted. He was. Scripture tells us he was. Like you and I, he was tempted. Tempted to hate, tempted to lie, tempted to lust. These things were offered to him much like Satan offering the fruit to Eve in the garden. And yet these temptations were like a blade of grass that he trampled over in victory. Saints, we experience the blessed victory over death because we are found in him. Faith unites us to Christ. No longer are we in Adam, for in Adam all die. Instead, by faith we are in Christ, and in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus, you know, the law is here and, and berating us and condemning us, and Jesus removes us from under the curse of the law by becoming a curse 
for us by being hanged on a tree. And he keeps us from the condemnation of the law by draping his glorious righteousness over us, by giving us a cloak of perfection so that when the law of God inspects us, when the courts of heaven are called together and you are called to the stand and they set their eyes on you, what do they behold? Christ. His perfection. And on the basis of that, what do they say? Not guilty. What grace. What miraculous work that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The law has been kept. We are no longer under its terrible power. It has no claim on us. And if the law has no claim on us, law is the power of sin. What does sin do? Sin has lost its power. And if sin has lost its power, where, O death, is thy sting? Death is thus a snake without a bite, a scorpion without a stinger. But it doesn't stop there. God went even further in his triumph over death. He, he brought about the most fantastic reversal imaginable. Our Lord has used our great adversary to serve his purposes now. Death now bows before his throne, and he makes use of death, our foe, to usher saints into his presence. Death seizes us, it grips us, and becomes the gateway to heaven. What a divine reversal. What a flip. What our enemies meant for evil, God meant for good. And so he has turned this great evil into a great joy. And so now for Christians, death is no longer the day of our crushing defeat. It is the day of joy. When we die, we're perfected. Do you hate struggling with sin? Long for death. We now are in the presence of the Lord for all eternity. And we're now counted amongst the great cloud of witnesses in heaven who day and night sing praises to the Lord of hosts, glorying in his goodness and his infinite might. Death now at the command of God betrays sin and it ushers us into everlasting holiness. What a day to rejoice in. The dragon of death has lost its power, and the sovereign Lord Almighty has bent it to serve his purposes. And so now we say with Paul, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen. The gospel is truly the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God revealed, and the victory of Christ on display. If you here this morning are not a Christian, if you're part of another faith or you just don't believe or you think that Christianity is a joke, the crushing weight of law hangs over you. Even if you're a secularist, <laughs> even if you don't think God exists, you know that you've done something wrong. You can't deny that. And you know it because God has given you a conscience. He's given you a sense of right and wrong. You may not even be able to account for the existence of evil. Yet in your heart of hearts, you know that you've done evil. That your heart loves things it shouldn't. That you harbor darkness in your soul. 
God gave you this sense of right and wrong to show you, to show you as an act of kindness that you stand condemned before him. And you are not able to overcome your wickedness with goodness. No amount of walking old ladies across the street will undo the treasonous acts of sin that you've committed. But God has made a way for you to be made right with him through the Lord Jesus Christ, not by works, not by ordinances, not by a complicated list of things we have to do. This is the work of God to believe in Jesus. Whoever has faith in Christ, whoever trusts that Christ's death on the cross was for our sakes, that he bore the punishment for sin that we deserved, and whoever trusts that his righteousness is now ours, and the only reason we can enter into God's presence is because of his mercies, whoever has faith in that, that is the man who will be declared righteous. That is the man who has no need to fear death. That is the man who will not know the sting of death in eternity. Let me ask you, are you prepared to die? Death is stalking you, and it may come at any time. Turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and when you die, be ushered into his glorious presence. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I were writing 1 Corinthians 15, that's where I would stop the chapter because uh, when it comes to doctrine, I, you know, I talk a whole bunch. And then when it comes to practical things, it, it leaves off my mind. When we're in, thinking Bible studies, Wednesday mornings, oftentimes we're, go, we're going through Isaiah right now. Drew will say, all right, now what, what is, how should we live because of this? He brings it practical. And that's what Paul does in this exact text. Uh, Paul tells us now how we ought to live in light of all these glorious truths. Verse 58. Therefore, therefore, because of all this, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Earlier in the chapter, Paul stated that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, our faith is futile, we're to be pitied. And he kind of flips that now. Because Christ raised from the dead, because death is swallowed up in victory and resurrection awaits because of those things, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because of the reality of resurrection, we are to be absolutely unwavering in the Christian life, like a, like a mountain in a storm. We don't run around fretting, saints. We don't fret at death or war or disease or political upheaval because there is no circumstance here that robs us of this to come. There is nothing that happens here that takes away the glories that is to come. And so we can stand steadfast, immovable, stable in a world tossed about by every new happening. Like Stephen, when he was being martyred, looked up and saw Christ and was strengthened in his martyrdom by the vision of Christ, so too on the day of our trials can we look up and behold our glorious inheritance? The world will spiral away. It will. It'll, it'll just keep doing what it's done. But we, saints, we invest in eternal things. We invest in that which won't rot, which death can't rob. We invest in the kingdom of God, the fullness of which we will one day bodily inherit. And this is 
in one sense, the key to understanding what all the wisdom literature talks about that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. When we consider life under the sun, if we only look at this world, death is depressing. Life is vanity, meaningless, but resurrection gives us a new lens. We're not working for 40 years in the future. We're working for the kingdom of God. We toil to give an inheritance to our children that our children and our children's children would do mighty things for God's glory. We're investing in building the kingdom of God and that will not pass away. Think about this whole thing with our building. Uh, We're looking to get this building and we want to invest in, in this property. We're doing this so that Christians 300 years from now will benefit from the work that we do. Back in the day when they would build these grand cathedrals, they would start and then a generation would die and then the next generation might finish or might keep working or whatever, but you didn't start work on a cathedral so that you would immediately bear the fruit. You worked on it for the generations to come. And that is what we do as Christians in light of death and resurrection. We work for the life to come. We work to to serve the Lord and advance the kingdom of God towards that end. That's not vanity. Our work is not vanity. Our eyes will one day behold the fruits of our labor. Church, we work for the glory of God, and death will not rob us of that toil. Often, I think when talking about death, people sometimes fear death not necessarily for self, that's a part of it, but they also, especially in Christian circles, fear death because of what will happen to our families, because of our our spouses or our children. Uh, And I want to offer just two points that would be perhaps helpful when thinking about that. First, the Lord has conquered death. And why that matters is because we have a hope that we will one day dwell again with the saints. That is a real hope. That is something worth clinging to. Let that be a profound comfort. The Christian who dies is not gone. They're in the presence of the Lord, and we eagerly await our uh, reuniting with them. And, And secondly, the Lord is wise. God is not like, someone died, man. What are we gonna do about that? That's really not good. No, the Lord is wise. The Lord is sovereign over death. He knows Death does not operate outside of his will and his, his goodness. And, and we need to remember that he's good. God is good. He's good. And we have to learn that lesson now so that when death comes, we're ready. We need to learn to trust him now so that when everything is blowing about, we know what's true. We need to prepare for the day of adversity by knowing our Lord now. And not leaning on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledging him. We can trust God to care for our families. We can. He will care for them. He will. You are not Jesus for your family. Jesus is Jesus for your family. We trust in the sovereign hand of God, and we trust in his goodness, and we trust in the resurrection to come. Life is is constantly beset by trials and injustice, burdens and struggles, and we're told to consider all these things pure joy. How can we do that apart from a view of resurrection? We consider these things joy because we have hope, hope for the resurrection 
Hope for the glory of God to be revealed. Hope for the kingdom of the Lord. Resurrection allows us to look beyond our trials right now for a far better country awaits in the future. All is not right today. It's not. And you will have days of such incredible darkness, of sorrow and terror and trembling, of rending your clothes, sackcloth and ashes. Those days await you. Don't think they don't. But the trumpet is being ready to be sounded. Sound. <laughs> Resurrection is coming. It's coming. The end of sin and suffering is coming. This body with its sicknesses, its pains, it too will be changed. The Lord Jesus comes ever nearer. It is a good thing to long for the blessed eternity that we will inherit in hope. And I want to leave you this morning with the words of Jesus in John chapter 11. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you, through Christ, have secured a victory over our great foe. Lord, the days are evil and dark. We cling, O oh Lord, to the hope of the resurrection. We cling to the victory of your Son. Lord, grant us faith and steadfastness in this life to not be swayed by storms and tempests and waters, but to stand firm on the, the promises that death will be swallowed up in victory. Lord, you know our hearts. You know when we experience death, it stings. It does sting. We feel it, Lord. We mourn. Help us to see beyond what our eyes behold. Help us to look to what you've revealed, this mystery that was once hidden and has now been declared. Give us hope, O oh Lord. Give us hope. And help us to live righteously in light of these things. Help us to not be thrown about by the world. Help us not to be given to fears, thinking everything is going to collapse. So what if it collapses, O oh Lord? Help us to have that kind of attitude that we will march forward as Christians. And on the day that you take us, Lord, cause us to rejoice because we will be in your presence for all of eternity. Lord, give us a right view of death and give us hope. Thank you for this text. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you that you've given us hope, Lord. You had no need to give us hope, but you have given it to us. And we are thankful for that. And thank you for the work of your son. We praise you and exalt your name. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.